0: How do you know who someone is? How do you know who someone is? It's, it's quite easily uh, easily done actually. If you see someone in dark blue scrubs and they're frantically running around and they haven't had lunch and they're hanging IVs or hanging piggybacks and flushing IV sites, you know, you got yourself a nurse. It's pretty easy actually, right? Um, if you see a guy in an orange vest on the side of the road with a bunch of other men driving beautiful, powerful, diesel-powered equipment. You got a guy in the road crew. It's a beautiful thing. If you Let's say you see a mom uh, or you see a lady who, who's frantically trying to organize her kids and he's great at multitasking and she is tired. Well, then you, you have yourself a mom or someone who has bloodshot eyes and they're in fear of their pager going off yet again. Well, then you have yourself first year resident, right? It's, it's quite easy. So what? how do you know if someone then is the Son of God and worthy to be worshipped? I would propose to you it's, again, quite easy. And we have it before us in our text here today. So with that in mind, let's go to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be starting in verses 22, going all the way down through the end of the chapter in verse 36. Verses 22 through 36. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up in the mountain by himself to pray. When the evening came, he was there alone. And Peter answered him, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of the Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is no small thing to open up your word and to search the treasures of your word, God. But you and you alone have the words of life, God. So it is to you and to you alone that we come, God. We pray that you would... Show us Your beauty and show us Your majesty, God, and show us our sin that we might come to You and repent. Repent of our sin and come to You, God, that we might find grace and find grace anew, Father. We pray that You would make that happen in this time, God. That Your Spirit would move in this hour in a mighty, mighty way. Amen. Throughout the week as I was preparing for this sermon, when you're preparing for the sermon, the main thing you do is you, you you want to find this main idea. So you say, what is this nugget that I want them to know? And then you craft your sermon around that so that you can hopefully achieve such a thing. And I, I was working through the text, reading and reading and reading it. Reading it and read it 50, 100 times, literally, throughout the week. It, the paper, it comes with us. And every time you have a moment, you pull it out, and you're reading, you're reading. All I could find myself doing was just Seeing the beauty of Christ. Simply seeing the beauty of Christ. And I'm praying about it and praying about it going, (laughs) what should we learn? What should we do? What should should we focus on? And evidently, eventually it became quite clear that I pray that you too would just be able to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. Just simply to push aside all of these distractions. Just behold this God who is before you. And they simply gaze upon his beauty. So we see that done in our text in several different ways. First, you see it done in their fear when the, the disciples are compelled to go out and they're in the ship and the storm's brewing and they're being tossed around and they see Christ and they're in fear. In your fear, I pray that you would gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And then in verses 28 through 33, you see failure. That even in the midst of our failures, as we see with Peter, that you too would be able to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And then finally, in our weakness as well. Verses 34-36. We see all who were weak were brought to Christ. They couldn't even do it themselves, but yet they were brought to Christ. What did they do? They reached out. They gazed upon the beauty of Christ. That's our prayer and our endeavor this morning, that you too will be able to simply gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And this gospel, so we're preaching through the gospel of Matthew, this gospel has been moving forward in a compelling way and it's been challenging us and engaging us and forcing us to see the world in a new lens, not through the eyes that we were born with, but rather realizing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and that changes everything. And we see this man, Christ, calling people to repent for this very reason. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at him. And he's been doing these miracles. He's been teaching them about the kingdom and then demonstrating them, what the kingdom looks like. So you say, blessed are the, low, the poor in spirit, and then, he, and then he heals them. So you get this teaching and a demonstration of what this kingdom is like. And there's actually been quite little recognition of who he is up until this point. You see in Matthew chapter 8 when he's casting the demons out of this man and he wants to send them into the pigs who have drowned themselves. They cry out to him and they say, What business do we have with each other, son of God? So there's some recognition of who Christ is, but it's from the demons, right? Not even the disciples yet. It's from the demons. So we see that and then there's also these Jewish leaders who are opposing him throughout his ministry as well. And they have some understanding of who Christ is, but they only have enough to see that they are unable to see, or that they are unable to continue in their lives knowing who Christ is. But on one hand, they cannot continue in their own lives while also affirming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They're just like you, they're just like me. Something must change, and because of that, they oppose me. Perhaps that's some of you, unwilling to repent, and unwilling to give everything to God. So with us in this text today, we're confronted with the beauty of Christ as the Son of God. And let us not reject it. Let us not reject it. If so many before us, as, as we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and the political leaders are rejecting it, let us not reject it as they reject it. For many do. But let us rejoice in it as we just fix our eyes upon the beauty of Christ and gaze upon Him in His glory. So with that in mind, let, let's go back to the text and, and go through this first section here. Verses 22-27. through 27. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up in the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long ways from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. In the fourth watch, that's 3 to 6 a.m., in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said to him, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And before this account that we're engaging in, before right before this, Jesus had just finished feeding the 5,000. And as Adam showed us last week in his sermon, they are feasting and they're feasting upon Christ. With five loaves and with two fish, he fed 5,000 men in addition to the women and children who were wandering with him in the wilderness. And then as we see, not in our text, but in a parallel text in the Gospel of John, that the crowds and the multitudes, they intended to come and take him. And what were they going to do? They are going to make him a king. But he was no ordinary king. Was he a king? Oh, certainly. Did he have a kingdom? Oh, he certainly did. But he was no ordinary king, and he had no ordinary kingdom. So that is why, as we see, that he made the disciples get into the boats. He compelled them to get into the boats. He compels them to leave, and then he disbands the crowds. Now, can you imagine the feelings and the thoughts of the disciples? Months earlier, he had called them and bade them to forsake everything and follow him. And they had done. And now he seemingly pushes them away. That was months earlier. Hours earlier, they just watched him feed 5,000, but it wasn't Christ. It was actually them who broke the bread. It was them who, who gathered it all back together in the, in the baskets. But now, here they are, loaded up in a boat, pushing away from shore and looking back to get a glimpse of what had just happened hours earlier. And then the disciples, on the other hand here is, is Christ. And finally, he—he he, it's, so, it's so amazing. He has these people just constantly following him. What is his goal? It's oftentimes just solitude, communion with God. And undoubtedly, after feeding the 5,000, it must have been weighing on him that he himself was the bread of life. And as that bread was broken to feed the multitude, so too is his body going to be broken to feed or to satisfy the justice of God. And so he, he goes up and he prays. And he communes with his Father. So we have this conflict now. Entering the story. The disciples who were compelled to go into the boat and return to the other side of the sea. The, the feedings likely happened in, in um, the Sida, which is the very north end of the Sea of Galilee. And then they're going to go a little bit down and then a little bit to the west and then go to Gennesaret, as we see in verse 34, which is just south of, of Capernaum. But as they're going, this time of peace and this time of feasting with Christ turns into storms in their boat. And they begin to be beaten by the waves. And these men are fishermen. And they, you know when you're being beaten by the waves and you can be capsized that you're at the mercy of the sea. But when they're there and they see you with straining on the oars and in this moment of desperation, what happens? Christ. Christ comes to them. They're making no progress, but when they look behind him, they see this figure as their boat is being pitched and rolled in the waves. And soon the terror of the seas turns to the terror of this figure as they're being thrown about in the seas. and They're bobbing up and down in the waves. And here's Christ calmly walking to them. They're in turmoil. They don't know what's going to happen. Yet here is this Bright figure coming to them from behind. He comes to them, and he and he calms them, and he says, "Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid." Such peaceful words, such solemn words, brought to them. And do you know that? Do you, do you notice that Christ is compelling them to go, knowing what would befall them? There's not a storm, there's not a a gust of wind that blows, there's not a wave that rolls apart from the hand of Christ. And Christ compels them to go, to go out into the sea where he knows the storm is going to come, and then he comes in their moment of need, in in the darkest of the hours. There is Christ coming to them. And he comes to them, and they don't even realize. Do you see that? He comes to them. And they don't, they were with him like hours, early, hours earlier. He comes to them. They don't recognize him. This isn't the first time, though. You see Jacob laying his head on the stone. in Bethel, Bethel. And he sees this ladder going up to heaven where the angels are descending, ascending down to earth and back up to heaven. What do we see in John 1? Who is that ladder? Oh, he had seen Christ. He has seen Christ. Or you see Mary later in the Gospels. She she sees a man after seeing the empty tomb and presumes him to be a gardener. Or you have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This Christ is teaching them, but they don't even know in Luke 24. He's teaching them the scriptures, showing them how it all points to him and to him alone. They don't get it until he breaks bread. And then their minds snap back to oh, days earlier with the same man. We had broken bread at the last. Summer. So, too, with our disciples, they, they see Christ, but they don't even understand it. So here you are my bee. Christ is right here, but you don't see him. You're thinking, oh, my, my life has no point. But here is Christ and you just don't see him. The beauty of Christ is right here in the midst of our fears. And it seems as though He's being hidden to you. But He is right here. So though you may not understand it, He is right here. Though you may not see Him right now, He is right here. So in your fear, do as they did. Cry out to Christ. In your fear that you'll remain alone. Throughout the rest of your life, cry out to Christ. In your fear of being vulnerable because of the pain in your life from abuse, continue to cry out to Christ and to behold His beauty. Or in your anxiety that seems to cripple your days, cry out to Christ and behold His beauty. For you can be assured that His answer will again and again and again be, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Before before we move on, I, I hope that our endeavor is not in vain. I hope that you're beginning to see the beauty of Christ. That He's not just some figure behind you that you see, but you don't truly see. But I pray that you're able to gaze upon him and his beauty. And now we've seen how we seek and see his beauty in the midst of our fears. But now as we move forward, we will see how we can gaze upon Christ in our failure. Let's go back to the text. Unashamedly, back to the text here. Verse 28 down through 33. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and began to sink. He, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took a hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Isn't isn't Peter wonderful? He's like like a little child, you know. You have this son, and he sees his dad working on the car in the garage or in the driveway, and he goes, I want to work on the car, right? And he loses half the tools and most of the bolts and everything you need to reassemble the car, but that's beside the point. Or your, your daughter, she sees mom cutting vegetables in the kitchen, getting ready for supper. Can I cut vegetables? Pulls up a chair, kneels down on it, leans over the counter, starts cutting vegetables. and So we see Peter here going, oh, you're walking on water? I want to walk on water. And so he does it. And Christ calls to him, and he says, he says come. And to be clear, this is not a text about Peter. Okay? So reading this, we should not be, or the main point of what we're learning should not be, oh, get out of the boat, as Peter got in the boat. I must be brave, I must be bold like Peter. No, 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 that's not. But to his credit, he did. He got out of the boat while all of the others stayed fastened to their seats. And he takes this most difficult first step. And though the external assurance of Christ is right there, the internal doubts begun, begin to overshadow this assurance of Christ. And in that moment, he's placed in the same position as we all are. And then verse since so Adam and Eve, we've all been in the same situation. Will I walk by faith or will I walk by sight? Adam and Eve... They failed. They, it was, the apple was pleasing. The fruit was pleasing to their eyes. And their lack of faith was apparent in that moment. For the Israelites, they actually walked by faith, crossing through the Red Sea. Can you imagine such a thing? Walls of water, columns of water on both sides, flowing around. And you know I need to walk through in this dry land. They can be swept away in a moment as Pharaoh's army was. But this same group go to Kadesh Barnea the south end of the Promised Land, and what do they do then? They don't walk by faith, they walk by sight. They see the giants in the land, and they go, oh, well, surely God can't save us now. So they walked by faith, but then they walked by sight. And here is Peter. And he's actually, it's historically true, he's actually walking on the water, and he's coming to Christ. But you know what caused him to doubt? Did you catch that? He's no longer fixing his eyes upon Christ, but but seeing the wind. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Imagine how the story would be different if he had just kept his eyes fixed upon Christ instead of looking at the wind or looking at this or over there, but just simply gazing upon Christ who himself was just walking on water. Oh, these internal fears can oftentimes overwhelm the external assurances that we have from Christ. And these fears and these doubts of Peter soon lead to the the failures of Peter. And through the rising fear and the failing of his faith, he begins to sink. And it's it's very apropos that Peter at this moment is sinking down into into water. the, The very picture of judgment throughout the Bible. So you see in the flood, the water is this picture of judgment. There's chaotic water, which is chaotic in Genesis 1. The same water is used as judgment later on in Genesis 6 and 7 to judge the world. You see also in the Red Sea, think of that, the judgment of the water. So it's very fitting that here is Peter sinking down into the stormy waters, but you can quite as well imagine one sinking down into the judgment of God when he had formerly cried out in fear, now he is simply crying out into desperation. And it's at that moment that Christ has him right where he wants him. He has him in the place where he is simply crying out, Lord, save You know how much Peter loves to talk, right? You see it in Acts. He just goes on and on and on. You see it throughout the rest of the Gospels. Do you know, just short, Lord, save me. Sheer desperation. He's not going on and on and on. It's just short and quick. Lord, save me. And it's in the midst of this failure of Peter that he recognizes his full dependence upon Christ. With no trouble, with no sinking, with no water rising up to his necks, there is no crying out, Lord, save me. And it's only after this desperate cry that Christ immediately, immediately sticks out his hand, grabs him up, and saves him. There's much more going on than someone walking on water. I hope you can realize it. And he says to him, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? And then Peter and Christ, they get into the boat, and everyone in the boat begins to worship him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. They are gazing upon the beauty of Christ. It is the grace of God that these moments of failure, as we see with Peter, are quite common in our life. It's in these moments that our fears and our failures that we so desperately need Christ. Look back at chapter 8. What brought the centurion to come and throw himself This Roman centurion to come and bow down before Christ. What was it? His servant was sick. What was it that brought Jairus in chapter 9, the next chapter in Matthew? What was it that brought Jairus to Christ to beg of him? A synagogue official. One who had undoubtedly heard of the plans to oppress Christ. No, no, no. He comes to him. What was it? Sheer desperation. His daughter. What was it that brought Paul to realize that his treasure was not of this world, but rather that it was in Christ, that it was in heaven and heaven alone? Being abandoned by his friends, years of imprisonment, churches in turmoil and constant beatings. But that, that certainly helped, did it not? So some of you are sinking. And you know it and you feel the water rising up, just realize this is a grace of God to you. That you can cry out in sheer desperation and say, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. What a grace of God, these hardships, the sinking down. So don't let it be the very thing that keeps you from God. Rather, let it be the thing that drives you on to God. That you realize there is nothing and nothing else but Christ and Christ alone that can save you. That can save you from these judgments of His water. So going back, the disciples, they first see Christ. And their initial response is fear. Which is quite fitting. When we, in our natural state, we see Christ. In His holiness, and you look at Isaiah chapter 6, you see God in His holiness and our response is absolute fear when our sin is revealed to us. But then he, he comes to us. He says, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. There is Christ. The One who is crucified for our sin. The One who is crucified for your sin. So we don't have to be in fear anymore, friends. Don't you remember as Paul wrote? Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. This very message has turned the world upside down. This kingdom of heaven has gone forth with that same message. So when Christ... With this, with your repenting. So when he has done it all, what, the, what then is left? But we see what Peter says, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. So that you might be pulled out of the water. Not out of the waters of your failure, but rather out of the waters of the judgment of God. Turn to Christ. Gaze upon the beauty of Christ. So that it's not just those who are sitting in the boat who will be saying, truly you are the Son of God, but that you, that you might be saying and seeing the beauty of Christ. And today, throughout the rest of our worship and through this week and through the rest of your life and when you see Him face to face and then through eternity, might be enraptured with this beauty, saying truly, 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 you are the Son of God. That is not captivating to you. Pray for your hard heart. Pray for your hard heart. That the Son of God would not be enough for you. If that is you. You're in a perilous state right now. So we, we see them gaze upon Christ in their fear and then gaze upon Christ in their in their weakness as well. But now we see, even in their weakness, they are brought to Christ. Let's, let's go back to the text here, verse 34 through 36. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized, they recognized him, they sent around to all in that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And here in, in Matthew's conclusionary remarks, we shall find our own as well. That it's, it's not just in our, our fears and our failures, but in our weakness that we come to Christ. See, the crowds, they have come and they recognize Christ. See, he, they saw him in this beginning part and he was behind them. And they saw him, but they didn't know who he was. And then finally you see those in the boat recognizing him. Now it's the multitudes are recognizing him. And they're bringing him. Everybody they can. Everybody they can. And he's passing by. And as he's passing by, they're just reaching up that they might just touch the garment. The fringe of his, of, his, of his garment, just like the woman who had the hemorrhaging blood for 12 years. And it was enough. Christ was enough. Just as he was enough to feed the 5,000 and they feasted upon him. Here again you see it that they're feasting upon Christ and it is enough. So, come, come to Christ and reach out to Him. And if you can't, if you don't want to, pray that you would be able to. That there's no other alternative. What are you going to do? Without this assurance, you'll continue in fear in the sight of Him. Without crying out to Him, you're going to continue to sink into the waters. So friends, you have no other alternative but to gaze upon Christ. And his beauty, friends. So, which one of us is not in, in fear or failure or haunted by our weakness? Isn't that not all of us? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Behold his beauty and reach out to him. That even you might just touch the gar, the the fringe of his garment as he's walking by. And so those who are in fear can have the assurance of, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And those in their failures, and that is all of us spiritually, sinking down into the judgment of God. Cry out, Lord, save me. And in your weakness, reach out to Christ. And to Christ alone. That you might, all of you, gaze upon Christ. And see his beauty. Just now, but forever. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we have natural eyes, God. And it's I pray that you would allow us to see your beauty and your son's beauty, God. I pray that we would be enraptured with you. And your glory, God. And that we would settle for nothing less, God. Not the the fleeting joys of this world or the the perils of finding riches, God. I pray that they would not entice us. But that we would settle for nothing less than to behold you and your beauty and your Son, God. That we would cry out to the Lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy. Amen.